What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Are you thinking about starting a podcast but don't know where to start? Let me take a second to tell you about Anchor by Spotify. It's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need, all in one place. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast across a plethora of listening platforms, such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, all the big ones. It's everything you need to make a podcast, all in one place. And best of all, completely free. If you're thinking about starting a podcast, do yourself a favor and check out anchor.fm or download the app to get started. Hey everyone, if you're enjoying Increase of Our Reality, I'd really appreciate it if you could drop a review or a rating and I'll give you a shout out on the show. While you're at it, come join the Telegram group and follow the show on Instagram and across social media. If you'd like to support the show, check me out over on Patreon for early access to Increase of Our Reality and Big Dumb Inquiries, which is the Swapcast show I co-host with Kyle Rainey of the Big Dumb Podcast. If you'd like to pick up some merch, come check out the merch store. If you want to help me out to upgrade my equipment and pump out even more awesome content for you guys, Come donate over on Anchor. Or Kofi. And last but not least, if anyone is interested in being a guest on the show, sponsoring the show, has a topic they want covered, or you feel you have something to contribute to the show, send me an email at increaseofourrealitypodcast at outlook.com. All the links I mentioned are in the show description. Just tap or click the link tree link to be directed. Thanks, everyone. I appreciate you, and I couldn't be doing this without you. Now enjoy the show. The reality we live in can be a very strange place. Most of the time, fact being stranger than fiction. How will we ever start to understand this reality we live in unless we question everything? Join me and a guest as we unravel the mysteries of this reality one topic at a time. This is Inquiries of Our Reality with Shane Jones. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 38th episode of Inquiries of Our Reality. Today with me, I have Robbie Marks. He is an artist and an author. How's it going today, bro? It's going great. How you doing? Not too bad. I'm glad to have you on the show. Nice. Thanks for having me, for sure. So I guess a good spot to start is, uh, why, don't you, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself, where you came from, and why you got interested in the, in the things that you're interested in? Mm, I... Uh... Basically, you know, as long as I can remember, I've always uh, been an artist and been drawing and um, creating different things. And um, at uh, one point, I started uh, creating art and basically taking it to different concerts and selling it. And, you know, that that did uh, really well. So I was I was following a number of bands around, you know, for a while from. Grateful Dead, The Fish, The String Cheese Incident, 
and bands started asking me to do posters. So I started doing that. And um, through the course of all this, I was like um, studying like Eastern mythology and I was getting into a lot of uh, um, stuff, you know, in regard to like Buddhism and Zen and, and Tao. And um, through the course of that, I started studying more um, symbolism in regard to the art that I was doing. And slowly um, that evolved and, and you know, it, it was like washing over and producing the art you know as far as the things that i would interested in would be reflected in my art and as that went on over years and years and years um i've just uh been listening to a lot of books and i came to the point where i started finding threads in the books that i had heard nobody else talk about so i basically uh began to pull those out and to uh start to write my own um you know books and I initially started, I was going to do a podcast and I got like 14 hours done and cause I was kind of recording it and then I have a friend who's mastering it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I found this thread of Nimrod who was the first skinwalker and basically kind of went in and spent the, when, well, when, when COVID happened and everybody kind of, you know, was on lockdown, I kind of took that time and basically all the jobs I had in the music industry kind of died off. And um, I kind of had a little extra time on my hand. So I kind of ended up producing this book, you know. So it's, it's kind of like been a, a progressive thing as far as, you know, and, and like constantly we're all evolving into our own future, you know. Oh, yeah, for sure. And books take a while to write, too. Like a lot of people don't realize that people, when they write books, it takes years. It's not just like somebody puts out a book every couple months. So it's it's a process, especially if you're doing research style books like you're doing, too. You know, you got to yeah. dig through a lot of information to even have the information to put in the book rather than just somebody like writing a story out of nowhere, you know. Right, right. Well, and what I did was I took um, for all those years, I was kind of just like, you know, feeding it into the database and not, and, you know, kind of taking it in on a subconscious level and kind of just assimilating it as I was hearing it. And then at a certain point I started, you know, thinking, well, maybe I should take some notes on some of this stuff. So I started writing stuff down and then I started photographing book pages when I would come across things that specifically interested me. And uh, then I started taking screenshots of, you know, books I was like, um, looking at digitally and uh, I accumulated uh, I've got about probably 60,000 notes now and I I went through and I um, you know and this is all time of course you know um, but I, I categorized them by the year um, by the region you know and country and by the subject matter so then I can basically go in and I have this giant database and I can type in keywords and kind of you know, get, you know, lists of things that are associated with it in the same region. So you can kind of start to like pull things together and see how things play off one another that you normally wouldn't see, you know, just by um, going through and reading, you know. So um, it's like a more intricate guess, way of connecting the dots, of course, when you have all yeah. information right in front of you. Yeah, well, and you can type in a certain year and you can see all the all the stuff that happened that year, you know, and when you've got like Alexander the Great and the Druids doing things at the same time and you, and you just start to see, you know, how um, history 
is kind of um, reflecting on itself and building on itself and what is taking place at what times. So it just gives you a better semblance, you know, of, of what the history is, I think. Yeah. And a lot of the issue too, is that you'll read different passages about certain things that happen at certain times, but a lot of people don't connect the dots of them happening at the same time also. So, you know, putting it in the order in which you did makes it so that you can make other connections because somebody might be doing something similar to somebody else around the same time, but you wouldn't put two and two together unless you're looking at those two pieces of information next to each other. Right. Well, and then also as you go through and you read multiple books on the same subject, um, then you can take these uh, these different stories and compare and contrast them. You know, if you keep the notes on, you know, because I was basically I was following justice back as far as I could. And I was far following liberty back as far as I could and kind of like looking at what goddesses were associated and kind of like how that thought form moved and like just so, so it's, it's just interesting, but I came across that the whole um, uh, Nimrod, the first skinwalker through the course of this and kind of started building those pieces. And then as I was doing that, I went in and I basically got the background of the countries and who the gods and the goddesses were and like how the festivals were rotating and kind of just like, you know, not only followed the thread of, because essentially what it's about is um, Adam, the, you know, the first man, um, he, when he died, um, they basically took his skin and preserved it as a, uh, as a ritual garment, right? And they also preserved his bones, they, which they called the Kaaba of Adam. And um, so I, I kind of went through and I, you know, traced back into the regions where all this stuff was going on and read about the histories and kind of like all the processes and the different, you know, um, you know, the mystery schools and kind of following how those formed. And it's, it became an involved process that ended up taking a um, little over three years, you know, just to, just to pull all this stuff together and get it into a digestible form. So I guess starting from the beginning of that too, um, you said Adam, it was from somebody wearing his skin. Is that where the whole like Mormon aspect plays into all of the skinwalker aspect? Well, so when you go back and you look at uh, the characters like coming down from the line of Noah, um, essentially you have um, Nimrod, who his father was Cush, um, who is associated, well, Ham is associated with chemistry and associated with bringing like the religion from Ethiopia into Egypt, right? And then it kind of moves from Egypt out into, you know, into Samaria and becomes part of the Akkadian Empire. And so I kind of followed that whole movement and kind of traced those uh, thought philosophies and those different, you know, mystery schools and um, kind of just more than create, just more than just following the thread of this garment, this necromantic garment, um, I followed it through history, right? But Nimrod, that character of Nimrod, essentially at the age of 22, he um, is the first recorded skinwalker that he's, it's the first reference I've seen to any skinwalker in the ancient texts. So, yeah. Did he have like the same abilities that we would associate with skinwalkers today, or was it like a totally different form of a skinwalker? Well, yeah. So um, it's interesting because that skin, when it was when it was 
transversed over on Noah's Ark, um, which I get into the Indian, the Hindu philosophy. I get into the Asian philosophy. I get into the Mesopotamian philosophy. And there's, you know, there's contrasting stories. But nonetheless, when they bring it over, um, the first time that someone is recorded wearing it, um, which I, I don't know that it was necessarily the first time it was worn, but when Nimrod got that skin and put it on at age 22, um, and the Mormon texts um, actually say he was 20, but if you get into Blavatsky, Madame Blavatsky, um, she says that it was 22 when he put the, put the skin on. And when that happened, he became uh, Nimrod the Great is what they called him. And essentially, that's when he took over all of, um, you know, Mesopotamia and Shinar and Sumar. And basically, he ruled over and he was like violent and he was going around and um, crucifying kings alive. And, you know, and he's associated with um, the cannibals, like the priests of Baal. He was the high priest of the priest of Baal. So he was actually participating in a lot of uh, blood magic and ritual sacrifice and um, even to the point of being a cannibal himself, you know. That's what I was going to ask you. I'm assuming that's where the term cannibal comes from. Right, right. And I think um, for some reason I have it also in my head that it links back to Cain and Abel as far as being cannibal, Cain and Abel. Um, It's kind of the destruction of one's own self or one's own kind i think um but it echoes in in the in canna ancient canna and the priests of baal um were called the canna baal so they were essentially the and they were like the uh cyclopean um like anunnaki kind of the uh analogous to the fallen ones you know or as, as far as the fallen angels biblically you know or the titans in in the greek titomancy so also asking another weird question, do you, are you one of the, do you, are you one of the people that believe that the Anunnaki uh, may be what we perceive as angels to begin with? Cause I've always kind of been on that theory also. Yeah. It's fun. Now when you get into the Sumerian texts, um, they say basically that um, the fresh water and the salt water, they mingled. And when that happened, it created the Anu, which was the sky God, right? And that sky god, through the course of all these turnings in the heavens, um, basically churned forth these Anunnaki. So, you know, the Anunnaki are essentially, you know, brought forth from the heavens. So, you know, much like the uh, Cochina of the, uh, the um, Dakotas, where they're, you know, the sky people that come down. Um, you have in, in every culture, um there's the you know some call them like the watcher class um that it gets into the titans it gets into the anunnaki from that would be the sumerian you know um and then it also angels from the book of enoch right right during during the time of jared essentially um would be when the uh the fallen one and the more that i researched and dug into um the atlanteans um, from what I can tell, the Atlanteans were essentially the, um, the fallen ones that had come down and, and were breeding with the women and basically ruling over certain, you know, areas during that time. And they were the ones that set up 
the um, the Atlantean um, seven ring city um, that had the seven oracles that transversed into what was you know essentially the foundation of of the mystery schools coming out of Egypt and into uh, Samaria and um, in all of Mesopotamia. So I guess another side question, kind of going off my last one too, are we misinterpreting angels for Anunnaki or are we misinterpreting Anunnaki for angels? I think that depending on the, the different cultures and the different peoples, that they had different names that all were talking about the same beings. That's kind of what I was thinking too. But then would, yeah. it, would it have been something that came from like the Bible where it would have been like, like a descendant of God or would it have been like, like an extraterrestrial being like, what, what's your kind of perception on it? Um, well, and, and the word Anunnaki, um, when you get into it, there's some discussion that in the Navajo, it means ant people. Um, but if you look at the Sumerian, um, it actually means where the heavens meet the earth. So then you can start to look at, is it something um, that's more like a celestial being that's coming from, you know, um, the heavens? Or is it some sort of a dimensional being that's manifesting in our realm through portals of some sort? You know, um, yeah, that's a good question. Though. Um, as far as the answer, that's yeah. Yeah, I just I go through and, and I look at all the texts and I compare them and contrast them. Um, it's, it's just, uh, to say that it's one thing or the other, um, you know, you almost have to think it's, it's kind of all of them and none of them. Um, but at the same time you find, um, cohesive elements throughout the stories and you can see how the, um, Tidomancy began, um, in the same region of Carpathia and, and basically moved down in. And so you can trace a lot of these mythos and find the connecting points as far as where, you know, um, they kind of evolve out of and then spread, mm. you know? So it's, it's, yeah. But I think that, that when you're dealing with um, a lot of these characters, as far as the Anunnaki or the Nephilim um, or the Gigantos or the Titans, um, I think that they're all because, and especially with the mystery schools, and when you follow those goddesses and, and you know, back, um, they all relate, you know, to the same philosophies. And it's just kind of as they spread, they took on the cultural needs of each civilization, depending upon the time. And, and a lot of that was based around trade and mercantilism, you know, as far as trading, tra trading, you know, um, communities and um, just how culture and civilization moved like as a whole, you know, that's kind of the conclusion I came to is just, again, like different, different names for the same thing, just a matter of perspective coming from different cultures. Um, right. I guess this will probably be a question that'll come up a little bit later, but where does like Skinwalker fall into like the Navajo tradition where a lot of people believe that that was originally a Navajo mm -hmm. thing, but looking at this, like, it seems like the more people dig into it, it's more of like a biblical creature. Mm. So, like yeah. where did it make that jump? And I think that, that the idea of the skinwalker is something that, um, you know, that we can trace all the way back into uh, pre-flood you know, pre times, basically. Um, but I think that it's been um, kind of a constant. Um, and, and I think that um, 
in certain cultures that other types of skins took the place. Like I think when you see um, um, Zeus handing down the lion skin um, to um, who is it there that is um, associated with oh, oh Orion essentially right um and then orion um is is called as the great hunter right um and he basically goes out and has all his all his adventures and at a certain point he gets bored so he he decides to basically um take a journey into the underworld and you know and and so orion being directly related with that uh that astrological symbol of, of the, you know, the great hunter um, is also essentially um, Nimrod, um, you know, so, so we can see the carryover between all these cultures. So do you kind of fall into the area of like, uh, basically these fallen angels came to different areas and pretended like they were like gods essentially. And then that's kind of where all these different other religions form from. And it's all just mm -hmm. different bases on the same thing, essentially. Right. So, well, when you get into the book of Enoch, um, he basically talks about uh, that a group of these watchers um, fell onto Mount Hermon. Right. And um, there's currently on top of Mount Hermon now a UN base they call Hermon Hotel. Right. Um, but nonetheless, those those watcher class came down and basically um bound themselves with oaths and curses right to and they, and they were talking about they wanted to go in and basically corrupt the uh the humans the newly created humans you know so um and and they basically um went and took wives amongst you know the humans and and there's a list of the angels that are in enoch and they taught, you know, all the different, um, like one taught all the strokes of death and like how to kill humans. One taught like um, paints and how to, you know, use colors and, you know, and, and one taught how like writing. And so they were all teaching all these different things um, that were more associated with the heavenly mysteries. Right. So this is very much the similar to the idea of Prometheus bringing the fire to, you know, men and, and giving us the knowledge of the heavens. Right. But what, what happened was as they were breeding with the, the earth women, um, and you can get into the book of Enoch and it talks about how, um, the offspring of these, these combinations, um, were gigantos or giants in size. And they basically would rip their mother's wombs open and they had, two rows of teeth um and they had six fingers and you know six fingers on each hand and six fingers or uh, six toes on each foot and um they basically went through and started devouring like you know whole towns and they became a problem as far as you know for the humans that were proliferating on the earth already um and and it was the offspring of those fallen ones that became the um the the giants of old basically so you have the the initial fallen ones who were the they essentially they called them the pure stock right and then you would have the half stock which would be half human half giant 
or half human, half Anunnaki, angel, half, you know, whatever this force is. And then as they bred, the, you know, the quality of the stock would dissipate. So um, when you get into the Hebrew rabbis' writings, um, they talk about the fact that the giant Og, this is in a book called um, The Synagogue of the Jews, that's from like 1450 something, 1460 something. Um, but they talk about how um, the giant Og jumped on the ark and basically rode it into the new world, right? And then he inaugurated the new world with the hybrid you know, gene. Um, and if you get into the Sumerian texts and if you get into the Babylonian texts, they talk about the fact that Noah preserved the, the hybrid humanity, right? But a lot of the modern religious fundamentalists in, in the current, you know, more Catholic um, type thinking um, believe that the reason that the earth was flooded was to wipe out that line. Um, That's the and, impression I got from reading the book of Enoch was that the flood was to wipe out that line. That line. Right. Right. Um, and to a great extent, I think that's true because also you have Jupiter um, who wants to wipe out um, the humans because they're out of control. Um, you have um, Inky um, of the Sumerians who wants to wipe out the humans for the same reason. Um, but what and then that's the debate is to whether because in the Bible, it talks about the fact that Noah was a pure man you know, unadulterated and, and like, you know, still a of the pure human line. Whereas you get into the Babylonian and the Sumerian and they talk about that, that Noah actually preserved the hybrid line. So, you know, there's, there's some argument as to um, how they got here. Um, but nonetheless, all these cultures had stories of these beings, you know? Oh, yeah. So even like the Epic of Gilgamesh, that was another one too, where they have like references to these giants. And then, uh, oh, yeah. I mean, assumably they would have had to survive the flood somehow because there's still all the weird stuff in South America where people are finding like the giant skeletons and all that kind of stuff. And then you have, you know, all the elitists too that feel like they're descendants of something. And I, I'm starting to believe that they believe that they're the descendants of these Nephilim. Of the Anunnaki. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think so. Um, especially... Um, when you get into a lot of the uh, Luciferian theology um, and you start reading a lot of uh, Manly P. Hall and Madame Blavatsky and even going back into some of the Gothic authors um, like Sir Edward Bulletin, um, he, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, um, who was it that wrote the, uh, the Cain story that I'm thinking of? Um, but, it's, he's an older goth, gothic author, but but they have a whole thought line that uh, that the line of Cain essentially was the more dominant. Um, and there's some stuff when you go back into the Persian writings that talk about um, uh, Eve um, breeding with a demon and basically off off producing you know the line of Cain. Um, and there's different stories about. Um, you know, the Anunnaki and the line of, and, and you get into the Indian cultures and they talk about the Rakshasas, um, which are, uh, very much, you know, like the, uh, the Canaanite. Well, and then you also have the Canaanites in Canna that a lot of people associate with the line of Cain, you know. Um, but I think that, that there is a certain, um, sector 
that do worship that um, that darker bloodline that is the, essentially the serpent bloodline, so where they believe the reptilian type concept and like the uh, Saturn worshiping. I think so. Yeah. Well, the Saturn worshiping, I think, is a little bit different. Um, I think that comes about um, a little later when you're looking at the Chaldees and, and looking at the mystery schools and, and the rise of the Saturnian. Because now mystery is um, essentially the hidden um, system. If you um, get into Alexander Hillsop's Two Babylons, um, he gets into this extensively. But he talks about, and if we know the name of the hidden system, that you can trace that back to the hidden God, right? And the hidden God of the mystery system is Saturn. So, and if you go back to Egypt, Isis, in her declarations that she makes in numerous places, talks about the fact that her father is Saturn. Um, Osiris, in, in numerous places also, talks about his father is Saturn. Um, and you get into some of the old, um, like, Luciferic-type alchemical texts, and they believe that um, Saturn was essentially um, the lens by which, um, through the thrones, um, focusing the lens by the curiosities that kind of sacrificed themselves to like open this portal that allowed the human souls to transverse into matter, like through Saturn, right? Um, whereas I think a lot of these. Um, more reptilian um, type philosophies, um, the beings like as far as the fallen, um, the Nephilim and, and their offspring, um, they're more associated with transversing through Venus as the aperture, you know, through which they transverse themselves in the physical matter, you know. So it's, it's different um, manifestations um, at different points in the, um, slow turning of the evolution of the cosmic system, you know? I'm glad you explained that. I kind of had the idea that they're kind of the same. They're both different forms of Saturn worship, even going to the reptilians. I didn't realize that it was two separate beings mm. that they were like praying to, you know, to try to make things happen. But that being said, yeah. is there is there like a Saturn being that is something that we perceive as like being from Saturn then, if it's not the reptilians? Um, Saturn would be, well, but that's the whole thing is Saturn is like the father. Um, and when you get into the, the planetary elements and how they evolve, um, it's, it's a matter of it's, and it's not necessarily that they, and they do worship those energies because when you look at the mystery schools and you get into the idea of, uh, Mercury or Thoth or Hermes and the idea of that, that you know, morning, evening star that, that is Venus. Um, it, it, it's, uh, it's more the associated energies. Um, but all of those planets, um, essentially they transverse different aspects. So it's, it's, you know, but Saturn is essentially the father, you know, um, so this sounds like kind of a weird question, but if it, if it all is also connected to like portals, um, I guess that would kind of par partly go into like interdimensional type concepts. So if that's the case, um, is it, would you consider it to be possible that like on each of these planets within a different dimension, there could be just like a, like a race of things that live there 
so to speak. Mm. And that's where a lot of these different like customs might come from is there might actually be like a different interdimensional race that's on either of those two places that we just can't perceive. Like within the etheric realm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you get into a lot of the old theosophy writings and when you get into like a lot of Rudolf Steiner, um, who was in the Ordo Templi Orientis, um, he gets into a lot of the ideas that, um, there are beings on Saturn, um, being the thrones, the curiosities, um, and there are being, you know, there, there, in each one of these planets, there are different waveform energy beings. And a lot of what he thinks is um, the Christ um, is, is actually a sunbeam that was dwelling, you know, on the sun before he, you know, entered into to the portal of a man you know, on, in this realm. You see you that know. a lot too in symbolism too, where, you know, you'll see the, the, uh, the sun behind the head, for example. Yeah. And then yeah. another thing that I want to connect that's a little bit off now, but, uh, as far as like Saturn goes, you see a lot of a sim symbolism for that with a lot of these old cultures where they have the sun with the wings wrapped around it. Cause that was something I learned mm -hmm. actually today was that that's supposed to be a rep representative of Saturn. So okay. it's, seen throughout all these different religions and on top of the fact that you see that sun shape behind all these different prophets heads for example yeah the uh the glow the uh nimbus is what they call it mm -hmm. um yeah um but now when you get into saturn um and all the symbolism as far as the black cube itself um what you're looking at is at a certain point um when there was the war of the titans is is one of the um most common most commonly recognized that um essentially um saturn well it was you know jupiter down to sat and then saturn um who was chronos you know or, or time itself um and basically that the sun is zeus right and the war of the titans and the Titans were on uh, Mount Olympus, whereas um, the, the Gigantos were on another mountain, and they basically battled each other. And um, when Saturn or Kronos basically lost this War of the Titans, um, he was put into a black cube um, that was placed into the center of the Earth. And then um, there's talk of Jupiter basically you know, flooding it and, and filling in the spaces so that, you know, it was basically trapped in stasis. And, and I think when you're dealing with the black cube of Saturn in regard to time itself, right? Now, when you, when you look at the planet Earth, right? And they say, you know, time is dependent on how far you are from the Earth, right? So like the planet of the apes, when they go out into space for, you know, like 20 years, when they came back, hundreds of years had passed, right? Mm -hmm. Because the further the further you get away from the planet, the faster time goes, right? Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? So now, and and that's based on the the order out of chaos that we've made, based on where we're at and how fast the planet spins, right? Mm -hmm. But as you transverse into the center of the Earth, right, at the very center of the Earth is timelessness. It's almost like the zero point because you can't measure time there. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. That's just weird. I've never thought about it that way before. Yeah. So basically in the center of the earth, that is like a timeless place. 
you know. And and it's like uh, Odin. They talk about Odin sleeping in a timeless, you know, dimension, you know, ever dreaming. Like, and and you know, like Apollo when he's in the pit, you know, it's like basically he's fluttering and he's like, you know, looking, but all it's just all darkness and mist. And and I think that Saturn very much um, is, and I think that that that's also associated with the Tartarus of the Bible. As far as, because like in the Bible, it says at the end of time, like basically they're going to just zip Tartarus up and it's going to be like that it never existed. So when you talk about like the ultimate Orwellian, like, you know, um, kind of uh, suppression, I mean, basically they're taking all this, this, you know, rise against the, the cosmos that these beings represent. And at the end of time, they're just erasing them from the timeline which I think is pretty interesting, you know? Yeah. So like the, the different like planetary gods that, that we were just talking about, where where do they like fall into Christianity? Like what are they perceived as as far as Christianity? Would they be like Mm -hmm. the the part in the book of Enoch where he's explaining like the different beings that like take care of like moving the sun across the sky and like the different seasons. Is that where that comes into play? Yeah. um, I think at a certain point, I mean, when, when you get into the Bible, um, basically, you know, and, and it's almost like the mystic Gnostic Sophia, right? Where essentially, and, and even in Zoroastrianism, where as the creation was being made, there was almost an abortion within that. And there, you know, it's the idea of how evil was created, essentially. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that um, as reality was created and you look almost look at the planetary bodies as like an onion and each one represents another layer like binding us down into the physical like reality of what you know matter is and and i think that um you know when you go back into the greeks they looked at um each one of those planets as controlling different parts of the sensibility so like one planet would control the groin region, one planet would control the stomach, one planet would control the heart, one planet would control the brain. And we were just kind of like puppets that were kind of like at the whim of the gods. You know, they, they, and that's where you get into the idea of fate or fata, where basically everything's predestined and, you know, you have no control over it. And like the, the powers that be are just kind of like pulling the strings that animate reality. But when you get into um, the, the fallen ones and when you get into the idea of the mystery schools, I think what they were doing was um, creating the idea in the minds of men that there was such a thing as free will. So then yeah. that was essentially them trying to tamper with like, did they, so did they believe that that was actually a possibility or they're just trying to like, mess with people in a sense or were they trying to learn how to like almost like control their own fate was that kind of where the idea comes in yes in a way in a way but in another way i think it was just um the next level of a, a, a different control system that was that was um and and i think it has to do with um you know possibly the overall evolution of the human mind itself you know because um a lot of philosophers, they believe that, you know, 
it wasn't until a certain time that we even developed a conscience, you know? So it's, it, and then that's the whole thing is, you know, um, how far do you want to go into to evolution as far as more of a Darwinian thing versus a, a cosmic, you know, kind of, uh, you know, evolution of, of, you know, all matter and all, you know, energy and, and how that forms, you know, the, 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 all the races on all the planets and all those miscellaneous, you know, you know, creatures that the theosophists talk about that, you know, and, and even with that, I mean, at what point, you know, some of these UFOs that people see now are, are almost like, you know, sky creatures, you know, how they're like pulsing and they don't have form. Um, so it's, it's, and, and I think those things have always been around. Um, and you have to wonder in what, on what level they were associated with some of these energies that were represented by these, these planetary bodies, you know, versus also, you know, the worship of the dead and, and what that entailed on another level, you know, it, as far as the development of the worship of the ancestor, you know. Going into like like a biblical aspect of things, I don't know if it was from the book of Enoch or not, but they made references to like angels flying and then they were thinking that that may have been what people possibly perceive as UFOs now. Mm. And then it comes into the whole idea too of like, there's like the biblical written out description of what an angel looks like. And then there's like our idea of like what we think an angel looks like. So then it comes right. to like, which one's actually the correct adaptation or is it something that it's like our brain can't necessarily process what it looks like. So we create something that we can understand what it looks like out of what there is. And that's kind of where a lot of UFO stories fall in too, is that it's like, you're trying to rationalize what you're seeing because you don't really fully understand what you're seeing. Right. Right. And, and I think that, you know, depending on the individual and how open they are to different things, um, different people are going to have different interpretations. Um, you know, and you, you even see that now with some people recognizing certain things and other people not, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think just the natural psychology. Um, but, but yeah, you got to wonder if these things like are, um, planetary energies, um, dimensional energies, I mean, you know, and it gets even into the idea of, of what is outer space, you know, as far as, you know, the, the, the etheric elements and, you know, getting into the electric universe, the ideas of the electric universe. And, and it's, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's gets quite intriguing with all the different, pa- you know, it's that idea of the uh, garden with many winding paths. You know, and there's there's so many ways to go and so many things to look at. You know, it's uh, yeah. So of course, like the, the, all these concepts would theoretically predate any religion, including Christianity, because this stuff would have been happening before the actual religion was being written. So, right. like, from like the stuff that you understand, do you think that basically the Bible only started at a certain point where? there's actually things that existed before the theoretical God and the physical universe, but the Bible was just written from that point on because again, we weren't able to comprehend the whole idea of like a spiritual universe versus a physical universe. Right. Right. Um, and now if you go back into the texts, right. Um, you can go all the way back into, um, you know, some of the miscellaneous like vulture cults and caves and, 
like getting into uh you know the lake van area and and in some of the goat cults that were up there and kind of into the italian area with the wolf cults the like like what's it called uh lycopathy um where they're essentially dressing you know so you have all these different cults that are you know uh representing themselves as all these different animals and then it wasn't until essentially zoroaster um who brought about the idea and with zoroaster i mean he brought about the idea of an angel he believed there was an angel for like you you have your every person has their own guardian angel um and there was angels for all the animals and all the and and essentially he was the first one that talked about there was a beginning and there shall also be an end times at judgment you know and then through through zoroaster um you kind of have uh when you go in and you read a lot of the hebrew stuff they relate uh, you know all their stuff back to Zoroastrianism, um, you know, any of the history of the, of the Jews that you read. Um, and Zoroaster can be related to uh, Thoth Hermes um, in Egypt, you know. So it, it's just interesting. Um, but, but all these, uh, as far as when the Bible started, um, I think the Bible was written to convey a certain um, message in regard to what was going on um, after the flood and before um, the rise and crucifixion of, of the Christ. Like a uh, forced perspective. That's kind of why they removed like the book of Enoch, for example, is because they're trying to create like a forced perspective on reality so that they could almost like control reality and like what people believed everything came yeah. from so that nobody would actually have an honest understanding of all of these perspectives. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, and when you get into King James and you get into Sir Francis Bacon um, and, and you look at how the King James Bible was rewritten. And now when you look at the Bible itself, um, the books of the Bible are not in order. Um, essentially, you have Genesis, um, but like, you know, Job comes before most of it. Like the whole thing is out of order and kind of a, like a shuffled deck of cards. Yeah. So when a lot of people read the Bible it's hard for them to have a sense of like we were talking about before how things line up and connect right so it's purposeful but, then so that nobody could read it in a chronological order easily so people have to figure it out for themselves so you're almost like hiding knowledge within a book that everybody has all the pieces of but it's just jumbled so nobody's looking at it from that perspective well and i, I think what's interesting is when you go back and you look at where they got the books of the bible from as far as the first five books of the bible and the torah um, but then there's um, reference to archaeological digs and a lot of the Hebrew texts, they only had a certain amount of time allotted to them based upon the movements of the heavens, because everything was, you know, that, from the fall, you know, of man into reality. Um, we've kind of had to watch the heavens in regard to planting seasons and crops and being able to facilitate feeding the people and you know so there's kind of been, and and through the course of that um when you get into the sefer yesra um the book of formation in the hebrews they talk about that the kaaba or the kabbalah was handed down to man like as a roadmap to get back into the heavenly realm right and it's kind of like zoroaster talking about the beginning 
and there'll be an end times judgment, right? And essentially, when you get into the Kali Yugas of like India, they talk about how we fall down through the ages and we bottom out and then we rise back up and, you know, become one again, you know. It's kind of like all like in uh, Buddhism, how we'll all return to nirvana, you know, and the Bodhisattva will be the last one that will help everyone, you know, return back to the singularity of the Godhead. That kind of um, reminds me of the whole Big Bang Theory that it's like everything evolves, expands, and then comes back and restarts again. And then that's kind of the beginning of like where the Bible may have started, where there was nothing and then God created everything. You know, it, was mm-hmm. it could have been that there was already a universe before that that got to that point, expanded, yeah. and then collapsed, and then restarted again. And now we know everything from that point on. Right. Well, and there's one point in the Bible where it actually says that all time will it, uh, it unrolls and rolls up like a scroll. And, and it talks about that it does it over and over again, you know, so it's the idea. And, you know, and at one point when I was younger, I got into this whole thing where I was kind of following that line of thinking. And I was like, at that point, how do we know if we're moving forward or backward? Because as time unrolls, everything is moving in a forward direction. And when it starts to roll back up, we're experiencing, we're still having all the same experiences and thought processes. We're just living backwards through time as the scrolls are rolling back up. And then do we get caught in the process of doing that over and over through all of eternity? You know, I mean, that uh, might be where you see the expansion of like the human race because it's like now we have the thing where it seems like technology and everything is advancing so fast. So if time mm-hmm. didn't move like that, we, you know, like when you roll something out and it's on the back roll, it kind of springs back faster. So that yeah. would kind of explain like the progression of why things are moving so quick as far as advancements are going now too. If you're looking at it, as far as, yeah, how time feels itself, you know. Um, but but back to the idea of the Bible, I think that what happened um, was that through the course of these fallen ones coming down, and basically um, there's uh, Barosis. Um, he talks about that uh, they. Uh, they had made two pillars, right, at the city of the sun. This is pre this is pre-flood, right? This is in Atlantean times. And basically inside those two pillars, um, one of them was lattice work. It was like brick. And the other one was, you know, hand um, hand carved as far as chiseled stone, right? Mm-hmm. And inside inside these two pillars, they put all of the technological information of Atlantis. And basically, you know, establish them so that they wouldn't sink and, and they would still be, you know, they would be able to be found after the because they knew a catastrophe was coming um, because there was warnings and all the miscellaneous texts. But nonetheless, after the flood, um, Barossus says that they basically went back and they they got those pillars and they brought them back into um, Babylon. And that they started building temples and, and basically that region, you know, was, was uh, um, brought back under the tutelage of the pre-Atlantean, um, like the Atlantean oracle system that existed before, you know, and that was based off the, each one of those rings had a different planetary oracle that was dedicated, you know, and, and they would watch that specific planet in order to determine. And then, you know, when, when we bring it forward in the mystery schools coming out of, uh, Phoenicia, uh, not Phoenicia, um, but, uh, 
um, Egypt and and into um, I'm trying to think of the name. It's it's stumping me. But nonetheless, um, it was all based upon that planetary worship again, you know. And and Mercury, when you get into Mercury, he is the god of liars and thieves and travelers, right? So this is the god of the merchants. And essentially, as mercantilism spread, you know, they brought these different mystery cults with them as the trading routes opened, you know. But but these these um these Anunnaki Nephilim, like the practices that they brought as far as the um, labyrinthian initiation and the, um, the human sacrifice and, and the blood magic and the cannibalism um, that began to proliferate like in Mesopotamia heavily. Right. And it wasn't until um, Shem um, who is one of Noah's sons basically goes and cuts up Nimrod, which is analogous to the story of um, Set in Egypt, cutting up Osiris and ending the mystery schools in, in Egypt, right? Um, but essentially, that practice of those mystery schools um, is a lot of what the Bible is essentially trying to stop and trying to end and trying to reverse. As far as when you when you look at um, when when the uh, when the Exodus happens. And the Hiberu or the Hebrews, um, those without footing, basically, you know, leave Egypt um, and, and they go to Jericho and they march around the walls of Jericho and the walls come. And they're basically going to all these cities that are, you know, worshiping these um, these infernal gods, you know, and basically they're like, these are the gods of matter, like, you know, kind of like. Uh, when Sophia fell down, I was talking about before, and and Yah the Balde kind of believes he created the earth, but there's actually the God above the God that's even the higher God. Like all these gods think that they are gods of the, they are essentially gods of this domain, mm-hmm. right? They they rule over matter, whereas what the Bible is trying to bring forth is that I think there's higher thought forms that there's there's actually something higher than you know, what this, this world is and the forces that control this realm, you know? So, so I just think that that would be more the reason the Bible is written as far as to put an end to the, these uh, blood rituals and, and the cannibalism, you know? So like uh, continuing on, as far as like the skinwalker kind of concept goes uh, after that school was destroyed and Nimrod was killed, where does does the skinwalker thing kind of dissipate for a little while or does it pop right back up immediately after that? And then it kind of carries on through like a whole other like bloodline almost of skinwalkers. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, and I did trace it um, as, you know, from from as far back as Adam being his skin. Right. Um, I traced it all the way through um, Mesopotamia and Shinar and Nimrod. And basically, there's conflicting stories. Um, there's one story in the Bible that talks about how it was handed down, and it generally stays um, in in more what's associated with the line of of people doing righteous things. Whereas if you get into Madame Blavatsky and you get into the Mormons um, and you get into um, you know some of the Theosophist writings, 
they believe that um, that it was stolen by Ham and then handed down through Cush and given to Nimrod. And, and that kind of has some um, prevalence because in the Bible, it also states that Shem, um, not Shem, um, Esau, because we're getting to Jacob and Esau here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when Esau was out hunting, um, he essentially cut off Nimrod's head. And at that point, that's when he took the garment and brought it into the household of Isaac. Um, and this is before Jacob gets the blessing. Um, but nonetheless, in the blessing of Jacob, um, it's uh, Rebecca, who's Isaac's wife. Um, Isaac is going to give the blessing to Esau, who is the older son, right? Mm-hmm. And But he's basically licentious and... He's into like all the earthly pleasures and he's also associated with the great hunter. So he kind of has some semblance of this Nimrod character himself. Um, But nonetheless, um, he doesn't believe that there's anything past this life. You know, he doesn't believe there's an afterlife or some higher forms of energetic beings or some place to, you know, for the soul to ascend to. Right. Mm -hmm. So, when when uh, Esau cuts off Nimrod's head, um, he basically takes that garment and brings it back to the house. And that's the point at which um, um, Jacob sells Esau the bowl of lentils for the Abrahamic blessing. Um, but nonetheless, when Rebekah is, is getting ready to send Jacob in to Isaac for the blessing, they're kind of fooling Isaac. Um, and... So Rachel orders, uh, or not Rachel, yeah, Rebecca orders um, that a kid goat be killed. And they rip up the skin of the goat, and they apply it on the back of his hands, and they apply it on the back of his neck. um, Because his brother Esau, um, when he was born, he was born redheaded, and he was covered with hair from head to toe, right? Mm -hmm. So basically, they were trying to emulate this hair that that Esau had. And then the last thing that that uh um Rebecca does is she gives uh Jacob the the skin of Adam to put on. And um Isaac at one point in the blessing talks about the fact that that he can, you know, smell the uh the the smell of paradise. Um or he relates it actually that's in the Hebrew text. In the in the Bible he actually relates it to the uh, the plowing of the soil, which when you get into Adam, he was called he was the first husband, which literally translates to the tiller of the soil. So he's referring back to Adam as the first tiller of the soil, right? Mm-hmm. But but once he gets that blessing, um, Jacob, then that kind of uh, that garment that's that skin of Adam, it disappears from all the texts. So at that point, you know. You almost have to wonder if it was occulted and taken under another name and moved, you know, moved into, uh, you know, and, and it's like we were talking about Orion before with the lion skin. Um, on some level, I wonder if that lion skin is also a symbol of the skin of Adam. You know, Orion being the great hunter, Nimrod being the great hunter, um, also associated with uh, the labor, 12 labor, labors of Hercules, um, you know. It, it falls right into that whole mythology as you trace it culturally, you know? 
So like uh, going into like the Native American view on it too, um, they talk about how when somebody becomes a skinwalker, uh, they would have to kill a close family member. Does that kind of mm. go in back to like the biblical sense of like, you know, mm. Cain and Abel, for example? That you have Cain to- and Abel, yeah. Um, I think that, well, and that's the whole thing. I think that um, there has always been a tradition of skinwalking. And I think that varies as the times and the ages changed. Um, that it, it initially may have been human skins that eventually became animal skins. Um, you know, and, and even in modern mythology now, when you look at like uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, or if you look at like um, Buffalo Bill, you know, in, in the Hannibal series, it's, uh, you know, there's, there's references to still people you know, wearing human skins. Um, but even if you go down into uh, South America and if you go into the Native Americans, um, there is that tradition of um, a lot of times it's more associated with animal skins and putting on certain animals and, and basically transmuting into those animals. Um, and even I think if you get into some of the Carlos Castaneda books, um, when he's talking to Don Juan, Don Juan has he he's talks about skinwalkers and and transversing into different animals and you know being able to do some of that that darker um, night magic you know it almost makes me wonder too the more we talk about it if like uh, the whole Utah type skinwalker and like the original biblical sense of a skinwalker might be two things that are very close but they might be two totally different types of creatures slash beings yeah exactly yeah yeah i almost think skinwalker ranch um they may be doing something similar to what they did in like stranger things you know where they're essentially type stuff where they're trying to make a portal yeah and and basically you know that whole idea of uh going into the upside down or the the dimension that you know and and that's the whole thing. When you get into the idea of dimensional aspects and multiple dimensions layered on top of each other, you know, and you get into some of these ideas within a lot of the texts of battles in the etheric realm, you know, and how those are directly reflecting battles on the earthly realm, where it's almost like those two dimensions are essentially just, you know, in the same place at the same time but just on metaphysical metaphysically different levels of, of vibration, you know? Yeah. It's, it's like a mirrored image of itself, but upside down and it's not necessarily upside down, but you can kind of view it that way. It kind of goes into like the law of duality too, in a sense, I feel that it's like it happens on one side. So it has to happen on the other side, of course, too. Right. Right. And that's the whole idea. Well, and back to things that happen in the heavens happen on earth and the planetary bodies influencing the human body. You know, so it's it's kind of uh, very much the same mythology, um, just, you know, from different perspectives almost, you know. It's kind of weird to think about is that it's almost like heaven and hell and all that. The way it's you can kind of perceive it from the Bible is almost like other dimensions, theoretically, that could exist within the same plane that we're in. Not the same plane, but could exist in the same location that we're in right now, but in a different dimension. or yeah. frequency, You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, funny little story. Um, my daughter, right? We, whenever we go down to Massachusetts, a lot of times on Easter, we'll go to, you know, church with the family 
And um, it's generally a Catholic church with the bishop and, you know, and uh, so we were talking about to my daughter about because um, she asked about what Easter was. And we were like, well, you know, we had to explain, you know, the, the idea of ascension, basically. And, you know, the body dying and how he went into the underworld. And then basically when he came back and we talked about, you know, the, the, the glowing light or almost the portal, you know, and, and how no, he, nobody was allowed to touch him because of his, it would taint his purity. And we were talking about basically, you know, we thought he was transversing dimensions. And basically it was like a wormhole from, from a higher dimension into this world, you know. And so she went back to school and, and told the teacher that. And we got a call from the teacher. And, and she was like, and I was like, yeah, that's, you know, that's what we told her. And, and so then we go to church with the grandparents and there's a bishop and he's doing the Easter service. And he goes into this whole thing about Jesus and the fourth dimension and a wormhole between. And, and we got out of the church and my daughter was like, see, see, it was like, <laughs> but, but it's just, it's interesting that, that most people can't think along those lines as far as everything compressed into a single multiverse that's overlayered all on top of each other from the lower to the upper vibrational waveforms all contrast and compressed right that's because we're just thinking of things in our physical manner so like people can't comprehend the idea of like a being that could be made out of something other than like a carbon-based being or right. the idea that we only see a very minimal aspect of the light spectrum so it's like it's very small yeah yeah a lot of stuff that's going on around us that we physically can't see and we also can't touch because we're not made of the same things you know right well and then back to the whole reptilian thing and when you get into david ike's work and and you know almost like those certain bloodlines that are related you know to these ancient um you know fallen ones right um and and what's also interesting is in a lot of cases you can especially in the asian theologies um in in the east um, and it's some into Mesopotamia and ancient Samaria, um, basically like the Nagas, um, who were these, you know, reptilian beings that were, you know, like, uh, basically snakes with a human head, you know, um, and, and getting into like the, uh, Anquipede, um, like the, uh, the early, when you get into the Merovingians, um, they talk about basically that the queen bred with the Anquipede creature from the sea that was half human you know with with uh octopus legs essentially and that's what what you know the merovingian bloodline was um but if you get into the holy blood the holy grail they believe that was the line of, of christ you know um but it, it's just uh it's it's interesting but with david Icke, the fact that he talks about almost these things that are in another waveform or the, another um, light spectrum that basically crouch on and and basically almost maneuver those people like puppets you know it's it's interesting to think about um levels of, of possession and stuff like that you know so i've heard different stories too about uh, a couple different people i've talked to saying that they've had weird experiences where they've physically seen somebody in front of them where their face will like change and almost look like dragon like a reptilian and stuff like it's two yeah. things existing within the same vessel in a sense without even somebody realizing it and that could be like a lot of negative emotion and the whole idea of like the reptilian brain also come from 
Yeah, yeah. But if if there were some sort of an astral creature, you know, that that marched in a higher or lower wavelength that could, you know, bind themselves up with certain people based on, you know, a lot of people think it's blood type related, you know. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting to think about as far as, you know, being open to possibilities, you know. I've gotten into the whole idea, too, of uh, the whole, like, transferring consciousness through the same bloodline where there could be a lot yeah. of these people that found a way to basically not keep themselves alive in the same vessel that they're, physically using but they'll purposely keep the bloodline pure so that they have this way that they know that they can go into the afterlife and then re re reemerge within somebody else that's farther in their bloodline and that's why a lot of these like royal families like so many people look so close and they have just so many different uh characteristics that are very similar to their predecessor ancestors and intergenerational agenda yeah, exactly. Because it's in a way carried out by the same consciousness. And if those people had a way to keep their thoughts as they transverse into the next meat suit or vessel, then you know right. it's a lot easier to continue your plan through generations and generations. And then that's probably where a lot of this like esoteric knowledge comes from is mm. you know, just the same people knowing exactly what started from the beginning and just transferring consciousness and carrying on the knowledge. And I and now when you look at um Tibet as far as uh, the Dalai Lama, um, you know, they have a whole tradition of mapping the stars, um, finding exactly where that soul is supposed to touch down. Um, and then they'll take the items, you know, that were that person's and, you know, and they'll basically set out a, a lot of false items and a couple of that, that soul's items, you know, and then that child will essentially be like, oh, this is mine and this is, and they'll just recognize their stuff. You know, because they were just using it like a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. you know. And so there is a tradition, um, you know, in Tibet that and, and when you get into Tibet and you trace that back, um, it's, it, you know, it's said that uh, they were the line coming out of Atlantis that basically used entropy as a form of magic. Um, so, you know, and that's where a lot of uh, the Tantra and a lot of the lower forms of energetic magic, you know, come into being. Um, but it's, it's the idea that, that I think there are several hints through the text that there is, uh, is a controlled reincarnation going on. You know, I've, I've seen it in several places. I mean, you can even, there's a lot of Bible references, even like, like Jesus with the whole reincarnation concept too. I mean, that's even talked about within the Bible and a lot of people Mm -hmm. that believe in like Christianity don't necessarily Mm -hmm. believe in reincarnation, even though there's a lot of like all this subtle stuff hidden within the Bible that people don't even catch, like even just the skinwalker concept, you know, Oh yeah. there's a lot of different like magic that a lot of like Christians perceive as dark, which may not necessarily be a dark thing. It's again, magic all comes back to intention rather than like the person or Magic isn't inherently good or evil. It's all about the intention of the person using it. Yes, yes. Um, and um, as far as the whole reincarnation thing, um, one of the things that, that that brought to mind was um, in that same book that talks about Og jumping on the ark and coming into the new world after the flood, it also discusses that um, Adam when he was reborn, he was basically reincarnated into Abraham. 
and that Sarah um, or Eve was reincarnated into Sarah. So basically, the uh, the patriarchs of what became the uh, Hebrew religion and Christianity um, are believed in some circles to be the reincarnated soul of Adam and Eve. Yeah, that's, that's another weird thing to think about, too. So do you think that it would almost be like a form of reincarnation, too, to think of like the whole Enoch becoming Metatron concept? Or do you think that was more of just like a transcendence of consciousness? Well, now, with, with Enoch, um, basically, you know, after the fallen ones were called out and Enoch had done you know his job and gone to the top of the mountain, um, he was, um, what does it say, translated into the heavens, right? And I almost think of like, you know, when you watch Tron and he's kind of like, you know, transla- translated into the digital universe. But, but Enoch was also said to be the first one to enter back into the supernal kingdom of heaven um, since the time of the fall of Adam and Eve. So, and he didn't have to die. That's and without death. Without death, yeah. And um, then if you read, get into the Hebrew writings, it talks about that, that he has a smaller throne and sits at the right hand of Jah or, or uh, Yahweh. And basically, they ca- the, the Hebrew rabbis call um, Metatron, they call him the, uh, the little Yahweh is what they call him, you know? So, and, and he has... Um, Basically, uh, Metatron, right? He basically manifests his Metatron's cube, and he can basically transverse the universe and and kind of go wherever he wants and does whatever he wants. Um, and there's several times where he pops up um, in the miscellaneous writings. Um, if you get into um, Allen, uh, yeah, Al, uh, not Allen Ginsberg, Louis Ginsberg, um, and it's a book called The Legends of the Jews where he basically takes the writings of the rabbis and he consolidates them into a single narrative. And it's like a seven volume set. It's thick. I've only gone through like three volumes of it so far. Um, But he talks, you know, in that um, Enoch is showing up when the Red Sea is parted and like, you know, he's, he's helping, um, you know, the the, uh, Hebrew out, you know, before they become the Israelites. Um, and so, you know, you, you kind of have this character and, and being sitting at the right hand of God, I mean, you almost have to think he is the right hand of God. That's you know, the best way to look at it. <laughs> and going, going and performing tasks, you know, almost a taskmaster in a sense, you know? Um, but yeah, yeah. Enoch's an interesting, uh, Metatron is an interesting character. So yeah. two, two questions actually. So. Do you think that that cube concept also kind of falls into the, like the black cube concept in a way? Mm. And then, yeah. uh, see, what was my other question I was going to ask? Oh, and then what do you personally think is like the main reason why the book of Enoch was removed from the Bible? Mm. Um, as far as the black cube, um, when the, uh, when the Titans, um, overthrew, you know, the, uh, the, the, uh, Gigantos, um, those those figures were essentially, you know, in the Greek mythos, they were locked in the center of the earth in a black cube. Mm-hmm. So that's that's you know more the main story. 
where you get the black cube from than anywhere is the Greek mythology. Um, but now when you look at um, Enlil um, in the Sumerian theology, um, he is called the Cthulhu, right? So he is the uh, man from the underworld. When you take the Sumerian and directly translate Cthulhu, um, it translates as the man from the underworld, right? And uh, uh, he basically sat um, in the underworld. Um, now, he, he was in the area of the freshwater lake that was inside of the hollow earth. This is like the Sumerian, you know, uh, scripts. And essentially, he's sitting on top of a cubic throne, right? Um, but it's it's more, it's got a tic-tac pattern on it. So it's more like a Rubik's cube. Um, but nonetheless, it is a cube. Um, but it doesn't specify color. It doesn't specify, you know, black. It doesn't specify um, any of that. Um, but as he's sitting on that cubic throne, he's basically tending to the tree of life. And he has pots of water all around him that are like spilling forth and basically producing the water for the tig Tigris and Euphrates, you know. So that kind of links the Sumerian theology in with the Egyptian theology as far as tying it in with the, uh, the two rivers, you know. Do you think there's something like symbolic of the cube to begin with that all these different, there's different variations mm -hmm. of the cube? Like, is there like a certain like, I don't know, like a, like a symbolism to a cube to begin with that makes it so that it would be used across all of these things? Right. Well, now when you talk about three-dimensional matter, you're talking about forward, backward, up, down, left, right. So essentially you establish those six sides, right? As far as, as breaking it down, you know, and very much like the four corners, you know, if you were to take the four corners and, you know, bring it up, you would essentially have a cube, you know, it's a, that's a square, right? Um, but as far as the cube itself, when you get into the Bible, um, Jesus talks about, we are the salt of the earth, right? And that idea of the salt is a cubic structure itself, right? But it's a white cube, right? Um, whereas the and and now the black cube initially was said to be white. Um, when it and that's the whole thing. When you get into these, the idea of the transversing of the ages and the beginning of one reality and the end of another reality. Um, essentially, the Eden in some of the ancient Mesopotamian texts was a pure white cube. You know that 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 the Adamic couple were inside of, and it was almost like the engineering laboratory of the Elohim. You know? And and so, as that cube comes down and is immersed in matter, and and it basically becomes blackened over time. And that I think that gets very much into the idea of um, the dove, the white dove. At one point, was said to be black. You know. Um, and, and when you get into the Native American tales, the raven at one point was also white and it transversed and became black. So there's there's a lot of uh, cultural tie ins with this idea of the purity being corrupted, you know, and and um, it, it at a certain point, it said that another pure white cube will come down. You know, and this is the idea of uh, the kingdom of heaven ascending, you know, to the third temple, essentially, where where, you know, this new reality, the kingdom of heaven will ascend to earth 
and anything that's not in that that uh, that new kingdom will be basically evaporated, and then that will be the beginning of the new turning. You know, mm-hmm. so and and when you get into the black cube itself, and you start looking at, um, you know, um, if we look at Mecca, and you take that back to Petra, right? Um, it was Muhammad's grandfather was worshiping 365 idols, right? And that it was one for each one of the days, right? And they essentially can, they can deuce that into the single cube, right? Because that cube encompasses all of dimensional space and time. That's what I was going too. If it was like a, I don't want to say like a prison, but representative of like being able to entrap something or even looking at people as like salt, for example, which is cubic, it's like you're trapping a consciousness with inside of a inside of another suit or something. You know, like, like what it is. Yeah, trapping inside of a structure, and then that's right. also where it goes into the black and the white. Was like people were salt because at that point they may not have been fully corrupted, so they're still perceived as white. And then right. as time transcends, that's when like the black cube comes in. When whatever's inside of it is corrupted. Um, you know, even like the Titans were already corrupted, so that's why they're trapped inside the black cube. For example so it's like symbolic of just like entrapping a different version of reality in a sense you know yeah yeah um and and well and one of the other stories um after um jacob gets the blessing he ends up at the altar uh which was the altar of adam um in the beginning adam initially when they had fallen down into matter um Adam took um, some of the books, say five, some of the books, say six different stones and built the first stone circle, right? Basically to measure the heavens as they turned so they could determine at what point they could ascend back into the supernal realm of, of Kether, right? And um, when, when uh, Jacob, he ended up running from Esau at one point, he ended up at that altar. And that's the same altar that uh abraham was going to sacrifice isaac to you know that they had built this is the uh, it, and basically that that had reconnected the ancient altar that was the altar of adam back to the heavens when when they sacrificed the scapegoat right mm-hmm. um but but nonetheless um jacob he takes 12 of the stones from that altar and he's basically like you know, give me if am I, if I'm going to propagate the twelve tribes of Israel. You know, he's like, give me a sign. And so those twelve rocks they start to vibrate and glow, and they basically fuse into a single rock, right? And this is what is uh, generally termed as the pillow of of Jacob, right? And so he he came to the conclusion in his own mind that he now had in him you know, the 12 tribes, like that was the sign from God, those 12 stones becoming one. Right. So he laid down to rest, like, you know, um, for the night and he used that stone for his pillow and that stone caused him to have, um, a night journey essentially. Um, and if you look through the text, like Enoch, if you remember in the book of Enoch, how he's taken up into the heavens and he's shown all the cosmos and how all turnings of everything. So, you know, at this point, and we can see the night journey, you know, multiple prophets through the ages um, have night journeys, even like Ignatius Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, had a night journey before he founded the Jesuits. Um, 
but nonetheless, this night journey, you know, he sees all of time and space as like a blueprint, you know, and everything becomes as a singularity. And he like sees the rise and the fall of the temple and, uh, you know, it, it disturbs him and he, and he wakes up and he's like, Oh, this place is horrible, you know? Um, but after he wakes up, he takes that pillow of Jacob and he turns it upright like a pitar stone, almost like a uh, obelisk, right? Mm-hmm. And and there's uh, some sacred oil that descends from heaven um, that's almost like manna um, along those lines. And he consecrates that that pillow with that, this sacred oil from heaven, and um, the stone vibrates and it shoots into the center of the earth, right? And to me, it's symbolic of the black cube in the center of the earth. And, yeah. and when, you, when you get into a lot of the, uh, the uh, Hasidic um, you know, Jews and how they have the binding band and they wear the black cube like on their, on their forehead with their prayers in it, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just interesting um, how, and, and I think that ties also into Mecca. You know, and, and when you get into Mecca, um, you, have you seen how there's like a silver vagina on one of the corners? Yeah. Yeah. And inside of that um, are basically rocks that are meteorite. They're, they're fragments of meteorite that had fallen to earth. And I've questioned a couple of Muslims about this. And they're like, you know, they're, they're magic rocks that Allah sent to earth. You know, that's basically the reply I got, you know, but um, nonetheless, um, there are some other texts that talk about that it was one of the goddesses that basically fell into form. And as she was coming into the atmosphere, she like basically broke up into into this black stone, into these pieces. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But that that black stone was kept and hidden away like um for many years by different um different tribes um in in the regions and it was said that actually at one point it was broken up and one piece of it went into tibet um there was one piece of it that supposedly came to america and and went into the dc area there was one piece that went into somewhere in europe um some of the pieces went into um the the cube at mecca um and I guess Nick, there's an artist, Nicholas Rorick, that, that supposedly he had gone around and he had a box that he was, you know, touting was one of those pieces of that black stone, you know. So it's just interesting. And one of those, uh, one of those broken up stones was actually taken to um, Scotland and was used in the foundation stone for the castle of Edinburgh. Um, which is, you know, directly ties us in with the uh, 33 degree Scottish free rights, uh, you know, of masonry. It almost shows that it's not just like a just a meteorite, for example, considering that all of these different civilizations have definitely u- like used that, used that symbolically and have built in those locations symbolically, of course, too. Just as soon as you said the Washington, D.C. one, that instantly started connecting dots between that yeah. it seems like it, they purposely placed it there possibly because of that because well and you know and when you get into francis bacon and the rosicrucians and they're kind of um bringing a lot of this ancient mystic mystery school 
um, stuff back into the, you know, through the Rosicrucians that eventually in 1717 became the Freemasons, you know? Um, but yeah, it is, it is interesting just to see how it kind of all, you know, the lattice work of how it, how it kind of all seems to tie together in weird ways, you know? See, I'm starting to wonder too, if like the whole concept of pyramids are also tied to the cube concept. Mm. With, like the vibration, well, like you were explaining with that specific like manna that came from the heavens. Like I was wondering if like that, they almost tried to like make a shorter, wider version, hoping that it would kind of do the same thing, but with pulling in more energy, you know? Right. Well, and also within Freemasonry, you know, they stand on the square and, and the idea of taking the cube and canting it so that it's standing on its corner is something you see a lot in, in uh, Masonic uh, illustrations and art. You know, um, but that, cities too, they have like city art where it's a cube standing on the corner and it's usually a black corner. cube. Exactly, exactly. But now if you look at a pyramid and it's got four sides, that's above world. And then underneath, if it were inverse, you would have, a, so you're almost creating, you know, uh, a sort of an elongated, you know, canted cube when you're looking at pyramids, you know. Um, it's, yeah, I don't know, I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting though. It definitely has a connection. It just needs to be dug into a bit, but. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and when you get into the idea of um, creation and formation of time space, right? Um, essentially, you have that idea of um, it began with, with the dot, you know? Um, and, and, you know, and then you go from one to two, and you know two to three and so you you essentially begin with a dot and then the next you have a line and then thirdly you would have a, a triangle and then fourthly you would have a square and you know but if you look at that uh from a geometric standpoint you would have a ball you know and it would expand and then you would have a plane and then you would have a, a pyramid and then you would have a cube so I think a lot of what these symbols have to do kind of relate to the idea of the formation of creation itself. That definitely makes sense too. Um, I, yeah. I was getting into that and then it goes into the whole idea with like numerology and stuff too, where they start creating these patterns from numerology. Right. Right. Into astrology. So it just starts connecting to all those, everything all comes back full circle, starting to reconnect that it's all just knowledge forgotten that everybody has little pieces of it, but nobody's well. People are starting to put it back together, but yeah. really getting everything yeah. back coordinated to figure out what it means from a farther back perspective to understand all of it. Yeah. Well, and it's just interesting going through all these histories and kind of learning all this stuff. Um, and then you start to analogize that with modern um, history and kind of the things that you see going on with the things that you've seen you know, that you've read about and, and kind of taken in on an interpersonal level. And, and you can't help but start to um, see a lot of these systems manifest and carry through into modern, you know, systems, you know. Yeah, even it's like, like, go ahead. I would say just even like, like we were saying with like the black cubes being in a bunch of like big cities and stuff, it's like there's symbolic things all over, all over the place and people just don't, don't pick up on them. They just assume that it's like art or this or, oh, that can't be that. But there's only so right. much things that can happen that are coincidence before they start becoming questionable, you know? Right, right. Um, and well, and the other thing, um, 
you're talking about the idea of intergenerational, you know, um, controlled reincarnation. Um, and, and I think there might be something also to the idea of um, some of these um, characters being involved in some of the ideas that they're participating in as far as um, the cakes of light, you know, you see with like uh, Abramovich and, and, you know, looking at Padessa, you know, with, with, you know, the left finger, you know, how he, and, and the fish in the 14 and, and just kind of, uh, you can kind of see that tying back into the ancient Assyrian, you know, uh, mystery cults, um, as far as Osiris, you know, and, and, and Isis and the cutting up. And when you look at the, uh, the phallus and Isis's pregnant belly and kind of how we can see that transversing into the obelisk in Washington, DC, and then the Capitol dome being Isis's belly and kind of also at St. Petersburg square with the dome in the, in the obelisk and the city of London. And then the other one um, would be the, uh, the Swiss as far as the finance, you know, mm -hmm. so they have, they have the religion they have the war machine and, and then they have the, the banking and then they have the finance. And it's, it's, it's just interesting to, uh, to see how these systems um, maintain and, and stay, you know, in power positions, basically, you know? I mean, it's funny how they try to take over, like Christianity tried to push out the secret mystery schools. And it seems like we're at a point now where the secret mystery schools are taking over everything else again, like they push back. And it's even to the point where I feel like a lot of these secret mystery schools are even controlling a lot of these like Christian organizations. I would, yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, especially when you're looking at uh, some of these uh, schisms, um, you know, coming into um, what most people would term, you know, modern cults, you know, that are, that are basically facilitating some of these things. Um, and, and it's like the Mormon religion when you get into the, you know, their temple and, and it's, ba it was basically crafted as the, uh, new Masonic religion for the new world, you know? Um, and, and a lot of the histories and a lot of how all that's tied in and, and you just, you know, and, and, uh, um, occult rejects, they've been getting into that a lot lately with Skinwalker Ranch, you know, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. Pretty, pretty wild stuff, man. When, when you got all these people doing all this different research and we're all tying all these different, you know, bows on all these things and realizing we're tying the same, you know, different bows on the same present, basically. Yeah. You know? It's crazy yeah. how even like uh, the Mormon religion can be perceived as like, oh, we're just, you know, just any other religion. It's not doing anything, but they have more dark ties to things than people realize. And the more you dig into them, the more you're starting to realize that, especially with like you were saying, a called rejects, super digging into like the Mormons as far as Skinwalker Ranch goes. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's pretty wild, man. Um, and in in no way do uh, I mean to assault or insult anyone that's involved in any of these, you know, miscellaneous organizations. Um, I think that for the most part, it's um, very much like with the Masons. You know, you have the York Lodge, where it's basically the Blue Lodge, where you have the the three degrees, right? And then when you have Albert Pike coming along um, and, and basically facilitating the 33 degree Scottish Rite system, you know, basically um, 
it, it becomes societies within societies within societies. And it kind of gets into that idea like with um, Skull and Bones at Yale University, you know, where basically you're tapped in. And like, you know, it's, it's, it's so, the, and it's, it's that idea we were talking about the, the onion, you know, the glass onion of the Beatles, where like the planets were essentially that onion, you know, and we're at the center. Well, the, with these secret societies, man, every layer, you know, it gets into a denser and, and a more, you know, um, isolated group of individuals that, that some of these groups may know what's going on. But, the, you know, depending upon whether or not you're allowed into some of these levels, you know, it's and, and going back, you know, there was there was uh, laws against Freemasons and Jesuits, you know, um, not Jesuits, but Freemasons being in the Vatican. Um, there was laws against Jesuits and Freemasons being in different governments. Um, and the Jesuits were kicked out of almost every country, you know, around the world. Um, and, and now they have a, a stronghold at Georgetown University, you know, which is where Carol Quigley and, you know, Bill Clinton basically got his education from. Um, and it's, you know, so you, you kind of see these, these power structures coming into the modern, you know, world. And it was the, now, and most people don't know, but the first third party in American politics was the anti-Mason party, you know? And that kind of blew up for a while and then it kind of went away. And, and I think they kind of, uh, count on, and, and it's, it's the idea of, uh, they, they walk as many, you know, they walk in the shadows of all these different groups and they'll co-op the, the miscellaneous groups, you know, to, to do their bidding. And then those groups get the blame. You know, it's like, you know, people want to blame the Jews for this or people want to blame the Masons for that or people. Want, but I think that, that there's a philosophy um, that ties into a lot of what you're talking about with this, uh, this idea of the, uh, the reptilians, you know. Um, and, and there was uh, one word that, uh, that you could uh, try to get a reptilian to say that they were unable to pronounce. And it was the only word that you were able to tell if somebody was a reptile or not, right? You know um, what that word is? Yeah, yeah, I do. It's uh, Zen-Uru. Zen-Uru? Zen-Uru, yeah. So basically, for some reason, um, it was said that the, the vocal structure of those beings was unable to enunciate that word specifically. So that was one of the ways they used to be able to, like, like, you know, what's the meaning of that word? I don't know. I don't know. I just remember it from going through through one of the texts, man. I'm kind of curious know? if it's just like a sound that they know that they can't make or if it actually has like a meaning to the word. Yeah, I've always thought it was more a sound that they can't make, you know? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it is. It is interesting. And, you know, you hate to go down that road and and build up the idea of uh, interplanetary threat on the human mind, you know, because some people, I mean, there has, have been cases where people have acted out in, in strange ways because they thought, you know, someone they loved was a reptilian, being, you know, but I think that's getting into more uh, different levels of mental illness, you know, and it's, it, it, they take certain ideas into their heart and I don't know, it's, it's hard to say, but, but you got to wonder as far as the long-term history 
as far as, uh, but the other thing I was going to say is, um, how you, how they have the inter intergenerational agendas. Maybe it's a matter of the fact that these mystery practices, these ancient mystery school practices, um, facilitate a mean for prophecy and soothsaying, you know, um, that basically kind of like the whole idea of the Scarlet Lady or the, the, uh, um, you know, how they had the Pythian Oracle that would sit on the tripod and basically breathe the fumes in from the volcano and then go into a trance and basically give prophecy. Um, maybe it's a matter that, you know, there's a way that they can tap into um, this certain energy that is, you know, crystallized and locked in the center of the earth and in the state of every dreaming that, that, you know, and they're facilitating the ideas of, of this entity through multiple generations. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that definitely makes sense, too. It's just like, a, I don't want to say possession, but in a, in a sense, kind of like that. It's like, you know, it can't manifest itself. So it has to use another vessel in order to, like, promote its, its message or vision. Its agenda. Yeah, exactly. Well, and you, now if you go back to those fallen ones, you know, that came down, um, some of the texts actually say that the reason they fell into matter was to keep the human bodies from precipitating. They wanted to stop the fall into matter. So they wanted to try to corrupt the humans as fast as they could so that no more souls could fall into matter because they looked at it as a bad thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the other uh, line of thinking is that they fell down into a matter to basically establish their own sovereign kingdoms, right? And, and they basically wanted to set up their own throne on earth that, that would supersede the throne of the heavens. So, you know, basically, and when you look into the idea of the technocracy and, and how um, they slowly brought us into the phones and they're talking about cyborgs and getting into, you know, the vaccinations and, and, you know, altering the genetics of the humans. And, um, I was even going to say virtual reality, they could make a reality within our reality and control it. However they see it. Right. Right. And now did you hear they actually took a soldier that was paralyzed from the waist down and put him in virtual reality and tricked his brain into thinking his legs were working again. And they actually regenerated those nervous connections and gained use of his legs again. That just kind of shows the fact that like reality itself could easily be si be simulated, and simulated. it could not be like yes. a electronic simulation, like how people presume. Like I hear a lot of people hear simulation theory and assume that people are talking about like a computer program, but you know it no. may not, it may not be the case at all. That's kind of I'm not really on that yeah. side. I'm more on like the simulation of like physical matter, or spiritual matter, however you want to word it. Well, and also the cube, you know, kind of reminds me of a pixel. In the, That's in what the I was sense. thinking too, and and the whole idea of rendering, you know, as far as the landscape and and the perceptions that we have, it's uh, yeah, it's interesting to think about. But but you know, ideally, I think maybe it's more the idea that they're setting a simulation up inside the simulation that they have, you know, um, technocratic control over, basically. Um, you know, um, so a lot of what this, this technocracy, um, in my mind seems to be is the idea of setting up 
uh, a kingdom over the natural kingdom, you know, and, and go ahead. I was going to say, it would just be like a man created version of it. I was going right. to say too, wouldn't it be crazy if they broke down to find the God particle and realized that it was actually a black cube and that it could actually be just different realities trapped within one reality. And then it kind of goes into that whole, like, you know, universe to the universe concept, you know, turtles all the way down. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And well, and now if you get into DARPA and you get into that, uh, that quantum computer that they have, right. That was, they have a big write up on it in time magazine. Um, is that the one that can questions from other dimensions? Is it, am I thinking of the same one? Yes. Yes. Um, but that, that, uh, quantum computer, is inside of a black cube, right? Of course. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, and it's cooled to below the lowest temperature in outer space. Um, and essentially, they, from what I understand, they had to inject some sort of a human virus into it to make it work. And and basically, yeah, it seems very, very uh, hoodoo kind of mystical kind of you know, um, almost magical type, uh, uh, you know, um, technology. I was going to say it's, alchemy uh, was magic until it became chemistry, kind of the same concept. There could be a lot of these practices that we're viewing as magic, but once it gets figured out and it has a name, we're going to view it like a science. Right. Well, and HG Wells says, you know, any, uh, any technology that that's not understood is, is seen generally as magic, you know? So it's, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Interesting stuff, though, for sure, for sure. Yeah. You know? See, I could go on this kind of stuff for hours. I know we're going on about two hours here, so um, I know I'd definitely love to do this again if you're interested. Yeah, for sure, man. Um, yeah, it didn't seem like we've been going that long at all. That's how you know it was a great conversation, though. Right, right, right. So, but yeah, definitely. Um, anytime, man. Um, I'm actually taking off for uh, for a few, a uh, little over a month um, here in the next couple of weeks. But after I get back, yeah, we can we can figure something out, man. Oh yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, just shoot me a message, we can figure it out again. Yeah. So uh, one thing I do always like to leave on is uh, some words of wisdom coming from the guests to the listeners. So, is there any awesome words of wisdom you'd like to bestow upon the listeners? Mm. I mean, in in certain ways. Um, in my in my own vision of the universe um i feel that we are all like one creature in all times like simultaneously like broken into pieces almost and i feel that we're all fighting like our own individual battles you know we're all you know that idea of of we're all walking each other home you know it's it's kind of like uh but i think that you know and, and it's hard to a lot of the time but I think that, that just going out of your way a little bit every day to try to help somebody in a, in a problem situation um, and me being a father. And I mean, I know you're a father, you know, it's like it's like we're all kids, you know, we're, we're all taking baby steps here. Um, so, you know, have, have a little mercy on some people and, and kind of like, you know, do what you can to help your help you help your fellow human. You know, it's okay. yeah. Yeah. And well. And also, uh, before we close it out, um, one of the things that I've been doing, um, I work with this group called Conscious Alliance, and they're out of Boulder. But we basically do um, food drives at different festivals and concerts. Um, so I'd say go check them out, um, consciousalliance.org. Um, they're a group that, that I've worked with for probably about the last uh, maybe 15 years. Um, it's been a long time. 
but but as far as direct to action, um, if you look at their reports, um, everything's volunteer. They have a very small group of people that basically run logistics, um, but like most of everything that they facilitate goes directly to communities in need. Um, they supply food, you know. So, but yeah, um, that's about it. Just just do what you can to help your fellow, you know, in this in this time of of deceit and craziness, you know. Small little things can make a huge difference with people, even on like a smaller scale, even like holding a door open for somebody can totally change their perspective of the day and it'll just, you know, turn into somebody. Having having a conversation with a random person and trying to have a positive outlook, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, it's like, you know, just so many things you can do to put, you know, good vibes out, you know, it's, uh, I think it's important. Yeah, even even like you're saying, just a casual conversation. Sometimes people will go their whole day feeling like they're not heard, and you just you know have a two second conversation with them in the grocery store, and again, changes their whole changes their whole trajectory of the rest of their day. Yeah, yeah. Well, and what do they say? You know, at, at even as many people as are around us now, um, people are feeling more alone than ever. You know, so it's yeah, yeah. Because we're all being sure. away from each other in a sense too. Because again, everybody's scared to help everybody out around them because there's that whole instilled fear that you help somebody out and they're going to try to like traffic you or something, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. So cool. But uh, before we get going here, um, if you'd like to drop your plugs for your, for your personal pages, for your art pages too, I'm sure the listeners would love to check out your art. Cause I, I definitely love your art. Yeah. I'm uh, if you just Google R the letter R and then marks M A R X um, artist. Um, you should be able to find me. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Um, I have an Etsy and I have a Patreon. I don't use the Patreon very much, but uh, a lot of my more recent art is on my Etsy if you want to check that. So yeah. I'll add that into the description for anybody that's interested. I'll at least put his Instagram and his uh, Etsy account on there because I'm sure that anybody who would love to come and buy some art from his Etsy would be greatly appreciated because I'm about to go do a little bit of it myself after the show. So <laughs> Thanks, man. Thanks for making the time to come on today. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed this conversation. I learned a lot of new things. Yeah, good. Yeah, um, I had a fun time, man. And it's always uh, it's always fun to talk to somebody that has a, uh, a good understanding of a lot of this stuff, you know? Yeah, and you just got to like leave your mind open. That's what it comes down to. And that's what I hope a lot of the listeners are, st- even if you haven't gotten there all the way, maybe, you know, if you keep listening to podcasts like this, you can come back six months later. And if there's stuff you didn't quite understand, maybe, you know, you might start to understand it by then too. It's kind of have to like let your, what you perceive as reality kind of like dissipate temporarily to understand certain concepts because they go against the laws that we understand as reality, as we know it. As physics. Exactly. (laughs) Metaphysics. (laughs) Cool. Thanks for uh, everybody listening. Um, I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did and I'll catch you on the next one. Have a good night, everybody.